Some of you were expecting we were going to be moving on to Luke chapter 22 this week. I was too. But I just didn't have that freedom from the Lord. And as I was looking ahead in the chapter 22, this is what we need. And I, and I, gathered, with, I gathered with a group of guys every Monday morning. And, and it changes who can make it week to week. But, but I, I put the question to them. I'm feeling that there's more here that we need to spend a little more time on. We're not done with this yet, or it's not done with us yet. And uh, they concurred as well. And so we're going we're gonna to focus on, we, we went through all of chapter 21 last week and then just made note of the application that Jesus makes at the end. But I think the application really is central. And it's going to help us because it, it, Jesus describes in that chapter that things are going to get difficult. Things are going to be bad. They're going to get worse. And that, that's the kind of trouble that we're going to be in the midst of. In fact, we are grateful that it's true that what God says he will do, what God has said is going to happen is going to happen. And we love that in terms of the comfort and the reassurance and the glorious future. But what about when Jesus says, you know, there's trouble coming? In fact, increasing trouble is going to be the mark of the age. And at the end, it's even going to get worse. And yet, because he has said it, it is, his word can be counted on. It is going to happen. It's going to be like that. And so, in the midst of trouble, how will we follow well? Our study in in the Gospel of Luke has been all about knowing and following Jesus. And we need to know and follow. In fact, Pastor Ryan a couple weeks ago did a great job um, pulling out of chapter 17 how the, the critical essence of faith is faith in who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. And those three all relate together. Those three hang together. Um, they're, they're all important together. And we follow God on the basis of knowing him, who he is. That which is impossible for us to do on our own, we are able to do in and in relationship with Christ our Savior. In chapters 19 and 20, we saw that we actually, we live as stewards. We live as managers. That which we have is not our own, but we hold in trust. These are resources that God has put into our hands for His purposes for us. Not as if we're to gather them and hoard them on our own, for ourselves. How how do we trust and stay strong as faithful followers of Jesus who can give because we trust him, who will be faithful stewards with his resources, who won't buckle or run when hard times come? How will we stand now in a way that prepares us for when we stand before him? Well, the end of the chapter is where Jesus speaks to that question. It's going to be difficult, and yet you can prevail. Yet you can stand, and there's two key imperatives that he gives us in order to do so. One of them is to guard your heart, and the other is to stay awake. To guard your heart, to stay awake, and to stay awake is we stay awake by praying for strength. So we guard your heart and we pray for strength. Those are the means by which we will stand in the midst of a difficult time. And if I could just um, share a little more of my, my, my perspective as a pastor, is that we live in an age here in the American church, and my, my 
burden is for this ministry that God has given me in, in our church here. And we have been in an environment where it has not been costly to be a Christian. We are used to an environment where the culture, by and large, is supportive of even affirmed and encouraged faith, or at least some form of faith in God. And yet in more recent years, in the last generation or two, we've seen that begin to unravel. And sometimes it surprises us, the changes of our culture and the rapid rate of those changes. And yet we'd, we'd um, perhaps have our focus in the wrong place if we focused merely on the kind of things, the conduct, the behaviors that occur in our culture today. Because there's something that's going to be much more of an impact upon us, and that is the attitude of the culture, the society, and thus the people in it at large to faith in Christ and those who have faith in Christ and His Word. We have seen that it's, there is an increasing opposition and animosity. It's not just a, 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 um, a passive um, disinterest. It's actually a, a sharp antagonism against, and it's increasing. And where it used to be relatively easy and comfortable in the midst of the culture to, to live out faith in Christ, we're going to be more and more counterculture. We're going to face opposition. It's going to be difficult. It's going to cost us. And I'm not the only one that's, that's, that's aware of this, realizing this. I've, I've, I've seen a, a shift in pastors across the country. Uh, there, there seems to be a, a burden out there that now is a time to prepare the church for what's coming. And we don't know exactly what's coming, but Jesus tells us that trouble is coming. Difficulties are certainly coming. We've had a bit of an unusual in the church era around the world. The American experience has been kind of unusual in the past we've had for a lot of that. But that is changing. And what will it take to stand in an increasingly oppositional age? The passage I want to turn to is in Luke chapter 21 and beginning at verse 34. Luke 21, beginning of verse 34. Well, let's back up a verse. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. These things that Jesus said are going to happen. All of this trouble is going to come. So he says, because of that, verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares or anxieties of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. You don't see it coming. You don't realize what has happened until it's too late. For it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. It is coming, so we need to be ready. What does it take to be ready? Guard your hearts. Well, we can identify with that. When, when our friend Frank was experiencing something weird feeling relating to his heart, is it AFib or what? I don't know, but, but that, that's time to go get some help. That's time to get checked out. We perhaps watch our cholesterol blood, blood test. Oh, it's too high again. Huh. Maybe I need to change my practices. Maybe I need to change what I eat. Maybe I need to change how I exercise. You go to the doctor for an annual physical maybe or, or because you're over 60 and you really want to go on that Israel trip. That's an unashamed plug, by the way. 
Then if, if you're over 60, you do need to just have your doctor's permission to make sure something bad isn't going to happen along the way or just to give us some confidence that that's true. And he's going to take a stethoscope. He's going to listen to the heart. And if he, if he hears something a little odd there, maybe he's going to order an EKG, maybe a stress test. We all love stress tests. They happen repeatedly in life. Uh, maybe he's even, if he hears what seems to be or the EKG indicates, maybe there's a valve that's a little squishy. Maybe they're going to do an ultrasound to actually take a look at what's going on in there. We will do a lot to watch our physical heart. And yet Jesus says that's the wrong one. We need to watch. See, he's talking about the heart out of which the issues of life flow. He's talking about our spiritual core, our spiritual heart. How do we watch our spiritual heart? I can't even see my spiritual heart, can I? I mean, I can see my face in a mirror, and I can see what's going on with some of my body in a mirror, but what about my spiritual heart? Where James has a spiritual mirror for us. It's James chapter 1, beginning about verse 21. Put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But don't just hear the gospel and believe and say, great, I have got that secured. Be doers of the word, he says, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself... And goes away and at once forgets what he was like. It's like looking into the mirror and saying, Huh, that's a strange piece of green something caught in my front teeth there. But I really do have a pretty good smile. And the rest of me, great. And walking away. That would be silly, wouldn't it? No, the purpose of looking in a mirror and seeing if everything is okay is if something is not okay, now's the opportunity to do something about that. Respond to what you see in the mirror, right? And so also, God will show us something about ourselves. God's Word is wonderful because of what it shows us about God. Don't think of this book as a, as, as a book full of commands. Think of this as God's revelation. God reveals Himself to you. But one of the ways we are, we are often taken with the truth of the divine God inspiration of this word is because of what we know that it tells us about us. And when we're honest with ourselves, the word is honest about us and it tells us things about ourselves and yet now what are we going to do with that? Are we going to respond to what it tells us? That's what James is talking about, being a doer of the word, responding to the word, not just hearing it, smiling, saying, you are handsome, and walking away. How do we, how do, we do that? Well, we have, you, you heard Shane talk about small group. A small group or a discipleship group is one of those places where you can actually get input from others, others that you know who know you, who you can trust yourself in their company. Maybe ask a friend, maybe ask a spouse, maybe use an elder or a pastor or a leader of a ministry team you're a part of. Who is it that you could ask to also, with the word, be your spiritual mirror? You say, ask what? I have an idea. When was the last time you asked anybody whose who's answer you, you would actually value and give weight to, you asked anybody, what do you think 
could be holding me back spiritually? Or maybe you'd like to ask that question positively rather than negatively. Maybe you're a positive, optimistic kind of person. Bless you. Maybe it could be more like, what's, what's the next step that you think I should take in relationship with God? What could be holding me back? What's the next step? But open yourself up and get feedback from others who know you and you can trust yourself to. That's one of the ways that we can actually watch our own heart is get input from others around us. What is it that we're watching for? He said, but watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down. There's the scale. We need to do a check. Do I really want to be packing all of this uphill? What do I need to not be encumbered by? What should my heart not be weighed down by? And he gives us a list of three things. What to watch out for. Your heart's not to be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. Those three things. Dissipation is a word we don't use a lot, but it basically means excessive indulgence. And it's often associated with the result of drunkenness and then, and then hungover. And the emphasis with dissipation is not in the drunkenness part of it, but in the hungover part of it. That seems to be a related piece of this word, that with, with excess and indulgence comes lingering after effects that have a negative effect upon you, that slow you down, that dull you in some way, that... Um, Maybe it's, maybe it's on a, a Thanksgiving dinner and you had way too much to eat. You assume it's the turkey, but it's probably the carbs. And while you're sitting there in a, in a carbohydrate coma in the afternoon, you're not good for much of anything except watching somebody else play football, right? Because you've got that after effect of the excessive indulgence. And that's, that's kind of the idea of this word dissipation. So it doesn't have to be a bad thing like drunkenness itself. There's all kinds of excesses. And oftentimes we will give ourselves to excesses, indulgence in one area or another because we're seeking fulfillment there. We think if I can do that, if I can have that experience, if I devote myself to this, then life will really be good. It might be in busyness. It might be in ambition. It might be pleasures. It's too much of whatever that has a lingering effect. It might be the busy things of the day that made you too tired and then unalert after a couple days of that kind of a schedule that you shouldn't have been trying to keep and staying up too late and not getting enough rest, and by the third day, your mind is just not ready for the kind of input somebody else needs. It's not alert. You're not aware. You're not at the top of your game anymore. It can be as simple as that. It's not necessarily something that, well, will, what will it hurt if I, whatever you fill in the blank after that, you don't know what it'll hurt, but it will slip right past you. You won't see it until it's too late. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, having so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12 is not people in heaven, the stands of heaven watching you. Really? You're around the throne of God and, and you're going to be watching me? I don't think so. 
With that cloud of witnesses, they are testimonials to the faithfulness of God. That's Hebrews chapter 11. So in view of that long line of testimonies of the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God, let us, he said, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily befalls us or besets us. And let us run with endurance the race us before him. Now there's particular takes on what is that easily besetting sin. There's, but the easily besetting sin is different, distinct from the every encumbrance. Sin is, is, is disobedience to God. Sin is contrary to God's will. Sin is in and of itself wrong. Encumbrances, on the other hand, are the reasons you can't park your car in your garage encumbrances are a a 60 pound pack when we're going to ascend a thousand feet within the next mile of trail that's an encumbrance that's carrying too much everything in that pack might be good just like everything in your garage is good but you haven't used it in five years it's just hanging around stuff what other things do we pack in life that are fine and good? And it's not that there's anything wrong with this, but is it getting in the way? Is it holding you back even in ways you're not even aware of something that's even better? Paul had a lot on his own agenda when he yielded his heart and his will and said, Lord, what would you have me to do? Have you, have you done that exercise with just your regular habits and activities now and again? Lord, I'm doing a lot of stuff, but what would you have me to do? One of the things I know the deacons and the elders have heard me just warn about, not because I'm finding fault with any particular thing, but to warn about the whole aspects of various forms of church bureaucracy that we can end up saddling people and a whole lot of administrative stuff in meetings and so on that busies them in church stuff so that they're not available for people stuff. They don't have margin left in their lives to, to give themselves to others and to, and to connect with friends and neighbors. We've got to be careful about that. That we all need a place where we give ourselves away for the benefit of others, and yet even too much of that can be excess. Watch out that your heart is not weighed down with dissipation or in excess in indulgence. And drunkenness. Now, drunkenness, we can think of that, well, surely, that, 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 that's, that's going to be a good rule for us to follow. That's going to be one that we can take away with. Okay, not be weighed down with drunkenness. But drunkenness is contrasted with the filling of the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, as you, as you trace drunkenness through the Bible, what, some of the implications of it, one of the things that comes out several times is the, the problem with being drunk is a person not, is not able to tell wrong from right. I can't tell good from bad anymore. My, my discernment is foggy. Another aspect is the, is the reducing of inhibitions. When a person is drunk, they are less inhibited and they're more of themselves. Some people are mean drunks. That's because inside they've got anger, they've got meanness anyway. And they normally control it, and yet after drinking some, it's released and it comes out. Um, 
what's within us that comes out in drunkenness normally is not good. We have, we, have, um, re- we have less inhibition toward sinful selfishness that is normally in us. Rather, filled with the Spirit, in contrast to that, is to be yielded to, to be under the control of, under the influence of alcohol or under the influence of God's Spirit in His leading and guiding. Now, okay, that's, that's uh, aspects of drunkenness, but there's a whole other aspect of drunkenness and why, why it's a problem. It's an addictive behavior, and it's an addictive behavior because it's in a self-medicating escape. It's one of the things that we do in order to escape from things in life that are unpleasant, that I don't like, that I can't control, that I can't do anything about. I would just rather forget them, and so here for a moment I can forget. And here for a moment I can relax and have fun, even though there's a lot of misery that I'm facing right now. And so I'll self-medicate, I'll escape. Now that happens not merely in drinking, it happens with drugs, and you, and you know somebody, probably you know somebody that's gotten caught up in that. And what started as a fun escape from a, from a reality of the day ended up getting its hooks in them that they could not escape from. Another form of addictive behavior, and because it's a chosen behavior without chemicals, we think it's not going to be addictive, but the chemicals come from within our own brain. And it's very addictive. And one, one of those would be pornography. Another is gaming. Another is social media. And that euphoric feeling that you get from somebody's response to your post, for instance. That's impacting brain chemistry in a way that your brain likes and gets used to. And it drives you to continue that behavior in a controlling way. It has its hooks in you because what your brain gets out of it. Now, the thing with all of these is these are all false life that actually steal away or spoil, ruin in some way the kind of enjoyment that God has wired you and made your brain with its brain chemistry to get fulfillment out of real life. The ways that he would give you to have the same kinds of fulfillment and enjoyment that we seek by self-medicating. So weighing your heart down with this gets in the way of living and having, enjoying the real-life relationship that I could have. Dissipation, excess, drunkenness, self-medicating, addictive behaviors, trying to care for myself and escape rather than God's grace in the midst of, finally, the cares of this life. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glass. Glad. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down, Jesus said, by the cares, the concerns, all the demands upon you of the things of this life. Now, the cares of this life can be care, concern, or even the, the, the same words translated care, concern, anxiety. They can be about good things. They can be things that are worth caring about. 
For instance, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says that, says that he talks about his concerns, his cares that weigh upon him for all the churches. He is concerned. He cannot help but be concerned about other people's well-being. That's a good thing. That should be. Any parent is concerned for the well-being of a child, right? One of the things we love about having kids in the, in the service, even if there's a, 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 a noise or a squeak here or there, is it reminds us of the reality of family and the reality of, 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 of our individual families, but also as a family of God together. The, the um, anxieties Paul describes of care, concern in marriage. He said, you get married, you're not free. You men did very well not to shout out an amen there. But you're not. The man who is married is concerned about the things for his wife, how he will please his wife. And likewise, the wife is not free. She's not totally free to do whatever she wants in relationship with the Lord. She is concerned about the things of her husband, how she will please her husband. And she's supposed to be. They're supposed to give themselves to one another in that relationship. And yet... That's a limitation. The cares and concerns will limit you. They will weigh you down some. Fortunately, I'm convinced that that, that, that that weight in marriage, the care and concern for your spouse, is that's part of what you should be carrying on the trail. That's not some of the extra stuff you need to chuck out of the pack. But at the same time, Paul does talk about singleness there, that there's an advantage. There's an there's a div- advantage in devotedness to the Lord that one who is single has. In whatever stage of life they find themselves in singleness, that's not to be looked down on. I, I digress, though. That's, that's kind of alongside. But there's, there are good cares. There are good concerns. There are good anxieties. That's where we got off track. And yet we're told not to be anxious or concerned about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known. We're not to be, in fact, we found in the, in the Gospel of Luke, we're not even to be concerned about where we're going to get food or clothing or shelter, chapter 12. We're not to be concerned about what we will say and answer at a particular time of trial or trouble. We're not even to be concerned about the span of your life. And that would even reach into uh, the danger of health issues and what the doctor thinks I might have. And yet not to be anxious about that, that my times are in his hands. Now, there's, there's prudence involved in what God provides for us in medical care and, and, and pursuing that. I want to be of all the use I can be in this life that God has given me for as long as he gives it. And yet I'll hold that in an open hand. I'll not be anxious about it. There's the anxiety in Luke 10 that that Jesus confronts in Martha. You remember Mary and Martha. And Martha is anxious about many things when only one thing was necessary. And you could interpret that to say that Mary has chosen the necessary thing. The most necessary thing was to be at Jesus' feet and to be learning from him. The man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Or you could have said, Mary, you've been working all, all day trying to put together a banquet, this, uh, what is it, a charcuterie table? Did I get that right? All right. And, and uh, you laid out all this stuff. All we needed was a peanut butter sandwich. Really? 
Because there's something much more important. The bread of life is in your presence. So he didn't need to do everything and the need to do. How many times have he decided, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to get together with folks for lunch after church. We're not going to invite these folks over because we don't have time to really do that right. What if he didn't do it right? What if he just did it? Sometimes things that are worth doing are worth doing poorly. Sometimes things that are worth doing are just are worth doing with whatever margin you do have as compared to not doing them. We can be weighed down with too much anxious busyness. Anxieties crowd out faith. One of the guys in our Monday group, and I, I love this quote. I, I wrote it down. I, I, I had to share this with you. He said, it's not a stretch to spend five to ten minutes in my news feed and I want a beer. He said, I just want to crawl in a hole and drink these beers until Jesus comes. It's, it's overwhelming, the stuff that you read and you feel like you need to fight back. I identify with that. Not the crawl, crawl in a hole with a beer part, but, but I identify with the impact that a news feed has on me. And if I... The, tra- the trajectory of my day is set by how I started. And if I start with bad news, that sets a tone. You know, wherever you get your news, typically news is fairly polarized today. And, and wherever you get your news, there'll be, there'll be stories about somebody and there'll be pictures of that person. And even the pictures are chosen to be a little less flattering. They make the person look awkward or angry, or mean, and you're just not supposed to like that person. You're not supposed to like what you read about him, and yet you have never and likely will never meet that person. But you got all this angst about them because of what you read about them that you really didn't need to know. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, I get all uptight and upset about politicians that I will never vote for. I never vote for them anyway. But they're not in my district. They're not in my state. It's never going to be on my ballot. And yeah, I get all worked up about that. Anxieties that crowd out faith. The trajectory of my day is set by how I started. So what if I started with good news instead of bad news? That sets me up for for walking well, for standing in faith rather than failing. Jesus says, watch your hearts. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, he's just given all this this information about what's going to be happening, and he doesn't say, watch the signs. He doesn't say, watch the times. He says, watch yourself. Watch yourself. He doesn't say, watch your neighbor. He says, watch yourselves. Guard your hearts and pray for strength. But stay awake at all times, praying. Stay awake at all times, praying. The praying is a, is a participle. You don't care about the grammar, but the praying is the means by which you stay awake. So you stay awake with your eyes closed. That's how you do it. Stay awake with your eyes closed. Stay awake at all times by praying through the means of prayer so that you'll be strengthened to prevail or escape the influences, so that you will stand before the Lord. In that day, you'll be in his presence unashamed. You have stood, you have been faithful, you have prevailed against the influences and opposition of the age because you stayed awake by prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but um, end of the day prayer, posture becomes very important. Laying down, my head on my pillow, 
is not the place to pray. Maybe you can do that and that works well for you. But, I mean, I've even tried praying with Julie that way, and she, I fall asleep in the middle of, 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 of her prayer. I might fall asleep in the middle of my prayer. Uh, neither one um, impresses her with what a spiritual giant she has for a husband. Just last night, I, well, Julie's away at the retreat, and so uh, end of the day, and, and uh, I, just, I, I needed to spend some time with the Lord. Um, I needed to open my heart before the Lord before, before I went to sleep, and I knew laying down the bed is not going to be the place for this. So I had to get up, get back out of bed, and do my business in prayer, and then I could go to sleep. We stay awake by prayer. We pray or we don't pray. Isn't that, I mean, it's really basic, right? We either pray or we don't pray. Sometimes we pray, sometimes we don't pray. I've been in both those places. When we pray, we are leaning into the things that we believe. That God is, that God hears, that God cares, that I need help, that God is able and willing and ready to help me. He answers when I ask. I believe all those things when I'm praying. I lean into them. When we don't pray, we are also leaning into a different set of beliefs. We don't think about it, but we're actually actively leaning in another direction toward other beliefs that also at times echo around in our minds. We don't pray. We are, we are believing or stepping toward the belief that God is distant, that God doesn't hear or he doesn't really care, that I'm not important enough for God for, for, for God to matter about my prayers. I'm believing that I can do this. I've got this. I'm strong enough. I don't really need help. Or I don't really believe that God will help or even can help. Those are the beliefs that I'm leaning into when I don't pray. And by what I do, which way I lean, I'm reinforcing one set of those beliefs or the others. By stepping toward it, I'm reinforcing or strengthening that set of beliefs within my life. As a result, praying can strengthen your faith. As you turn to God, as you focus on who He is in prayer, what His will is as you see God answer, even as Shane described, praying about his work schedule and, and his work schedule changes and the encouragement that comes out of that, seeing that God answers those prayers. On the other hand, I can guarantee you this, not praying will not strengthen your faith. It just won't. I'm not saying that not praying will destroy your faith because I've gone through seasons of not praying. I can tell you that not praying will not strengthen your faith. It's a miserable place for a Christian to be continuing. Prayer in the book of Luke. I want to put, just put some of these that we've passed through along the way. I just want to catch them together for a moment. What, how, Jesus, in the gospel of Luke, we see Jesus in his humanity. What, what, what God himself in humanity, as human, how he lives. And you see that in the gospel of Luke, that Jesus, as a man, withdrew by himself to pray. There were times when he prayed all night. Times when there were crucial decisions that he committed that to prayer and sought God's guidance. In prayer, he was revealed in glory on the mountain. See, a, a prayer was the means by which he and the disciples saw things as they really were. 
Jesus urges his disciples then to pray specifically that God will send workers into the harvest. He uses prayer to prepare them because he's sending them. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in Luke chapter 11, also in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. We are, Jesus tells us in chapter 18, to keep praying and not lose heart. We're to pray with humility, without pretense or pretending. Remember those two who prayed in Luke chapter 18? Dustin shared that with us, how there's the Pharisee and there's the, there's the tax collector. And the one of them prays, oh Lord, I'm so glad that I'm not like that old rascal. Pretending, actually, that he was just fine in himself before God. Not realizing that his entrance before God was impossible. That brings us to Luke chapter 22. In the darkest of nights, Jesus tells his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. But they did not persevere in prayer. You know why? Because their eyes were weighed down. Their eyes were weighed down. That's the same word that is used earlier when Jesus says, watch yourselves that your hearts are not weighed down. Their eyes were weighed down. Jesus returns after agonizing in prayer, and you know in his prayer he's praying for himself and the circumstances that he's about to face, and you know as well he's praying for them. And he goes back to them, and he finds them snoring. He urges them. He kicks their feet, probably. He urges them again, wakes them up. He urges them to pray, and yet it's too late. The mob has come. The mob has come for the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. And he's going to be overcome with bitter regret and remorse because of that. And you've been there. I've been there. We're not having stood faithfully. We have given in. We have succumbed to the pressure around us or from within us. And we are filled with remorse and bitter regret. The day was long. Their emotions were spent. They are worn out. They do not pray. And as a result, they fall away. They do not stand. And yet Jesus has already promised, Peter, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. Prayer is where Jesus experienced relationship with the Father. Prayer is where we express to God that we believe who he is. It's where we step into our relationship with him. Compare it to a friend. What do we do with friends? How do we communicate with friends? What's part of the conversation with friends? We ask them for help. We just talk. We, we, we chatter about all kinds of things. We, we, we complain. Isn't, aren't you glad you have somebody to gripe to? That, that you sometimes get advice. You say thanks. You use them as a sounding board for your idea. Maybe they're great. Maybe they're silly. You, you, when you've got good news, you go to a friend and share it with them. Well, Abraham was the friend of God. And Abraham listened to God. He talked with God. Abraham believed God. Abraham complained to God. God, you have made me all these promises, and yet I don't even have a son. I don't even have an heir out of my own, out of my own loins. 
A servant born in my household is going to inherit everything. How are you going to keep your promises to me? You say all this, but I don't see it. That's Abraham talking as a friend, complaining to God. Abraham bargained with God for 30, for 20, for 10. Abraham trusted God, a trusted friend. Let me get into some of the just the practicalities of prayer. I hope I've whetted your appetite a little bit. Why is this important to us? This is where we walk in friendship with God. How do we do that? First of all, make time. Make time, and I would suggest early in the day. Start your day this way. How do we pray? Sometimes I don't know how to pray, but I find my Bible as a prayer guide. Whatever I'm reading, it doesn't have to be the Psalms. Wherever I'm reading, let that passage provoke you to prayer. You know, I, I, I noticed several years ago as I was studying through Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, there are several times when Jeremiah, in trouble and great anguish, he prays. And there's a lot of those little cross-reference, little symbols in those prayers of Jeremiah that go back to the Psalms. He's cheating. He's not just praying himself. He's, just, he's, he's going back to the Psalms. But he's not quoting the Psalms in his prayer. He's what we call alluding to. What he read in the Psalms, what he grabbed hold of there, is now leaking out of his own prayer life. Maybe he's praying with the scroll of the Psalms open on his lap. I don't know. But the Word of God is leaking into and thus leaking out of Jeremiah's prayers. So with my Bible before me, what I don't understand in God's Word is an opportunity for prayer. What I'm not sure that I really believe from God's Word is an opportunity for prayer. What I do believe and rejoice in in God's Word is an opportunity for prayer. What I see and understand but I'm not really willing is an opportunity for prayer. God knows that I'm not willing. God knows I'm wrestling with that. God knows that I'm holding my will in my own hands right now. Why don't I just tell them about that? Let's talk about that. And I bet just like when you've got something like that going on with a friend, and when you, when you start to talk it through, you quickly realize how silly you're being. Have you experienced that? Prayer is like that. Go ahead and be honest about what you're holding tight to. And let God work with your will, because he will. God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So then... We pray about, how do I apply God's Word? How, how, how about praying for others, remembering others? Sometimes you don't, well, I, somebody came into mind, but I don't know how to pray for them, and yet you pray for them anyway. We did an experiment in my D group this last week. I don't know, the, the guys didn't really know it was an experiment, but it was. I wanted to see what, what would happen. What would happen with, instead of after we had talked around for a while about things that are going on and things that emerged out of different ones, journals and so forth, instead of saying, okay, we want to pray for one another, how can we pray for, how can we pray for you this week? Instead of asking that question, I said, okay, guys, now let's just pray for one another. Pray for the guy next to you who we went around the circle. And you know, every guy prayed in a significant, insightful way for his brother out of the things that had emerged in the conversations and the sharing that we'd already done. Knowing one another, we knew ways to pray for one another that were not, quite likely, would not necessarily have been the things that we would ask to, to be prayed for. 
and so. Maybe try that. Just uh, the, the, the circle of a few people that are in your mind, just pray for them, not necessarily what they've asked you to pray, but as you know them. And as you know some of what's happening in their lives right now, pray that way. You see, prayer for others is essential armor. It's armor they can't put on. But Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 ends that spiritual armor section, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, keep watch, there's our word again, with all perseverance, keep at it, making requests for all the saints, Paul says, and also for me. That praying for others is essential spiritual armor, armor that they can't put on, but you can put on for them. One of the very, very practical idea, model that I would leave you with in terms of how to pray, and our time is more than gone, so I'll, I'll stop here, and that is use the Lord's Prayer as a template. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask, ask him. I'm not praying to God to tell him what I need. He already knows. And yet he tells them to pray. But he doesn't tell them, pray these words. He says, pray then like this. I think the Lord's Prayer, as we have it, is not a prayer given to us to recite, but it's a way to pray. It's a template for praying. And I would like to close doing that. As the worship team comes forward, and, you, and they'll, they'll then know about where we're going to be ending our prayer because you know the template. But as they're coming up, I'm going to invite you to turn over to Matthew 6, about verse 9. Go ahead and pray with your eyes open, looking not at me, but at those words as we pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is overwhelming to me at times, more than I can grasp, to be able to call you Father, that you have made me, you have made us in Christ your own children, your own family. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for the whole new reality that you've given me as in, in belonging to you. Father, I do want your name to be glorified in my life. Lord, I want my life, I want the things I do even today. I want the things that I say, the, the way that we sing. I want, Lord, these things to bring you glory and honor, that we would lift you up in the way that you rightly deserve, the way that you are worthy of. Lord, in the midst of the troubles, in the midst of our own weakness, in the midst of the health concerns, the loss, the, the, the mourning, the, the difficulties, the stresses, the pressures, the uncertainties, the anxieties, Lord, in all this stuff, we long for the time when your son returns. We long for the day when Jesus will, will reign and he will make all that's wrong right. Father, we, we want your kingdom to come. We long for that day in the glorious heaven, not just because it will all be good for us then, but life will be what it was always intended to be, with you and for you and at peace. And God, we long for that. Lord, would you, would you help, help me help us to lean into that? Lord, that even today, while we anticipate your kingdom, that your, your 
your lordship, your rule would be lived out a little more in my own will, in my own life. Father, you know where I'm resisting you and that I would give that up. I would yield. You know where we want our own way instead of your way and that we would, we would yield that to you. We would give that up, that indeed your will would be done. Father, you know our needs. You know what we lack. You know what we long for. You know the anxieties that press upon us. You know that there are people within this congregation that do not know how they're going to make it another month. Father, would you first of all give us your peace? Father, would you give us day by day what we need? Would you remind us of your love and provision? Father, would you direct us into how you will continue to provide for us? Lord, we do trust you for that. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness. Lord, there's not a one of us here gathered today that doesn't need your forgiveness in Jesus, our Savior, the one who died for us to give us his rightness, the one who removed our guilt and brought us back into relationship with you. And you say that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to continue to forgive us and to cleanse us. And Lord, we need that. And yet, Father, we long to not need forgiveness so much. Father, we long to be stronger in temptation, to stand faithfully before you, to not give in, to not yield to the enemy and his lies. So, Father, would you protect us from temptation, strengthen us. Father, would you protect us from the evil one and his schemes. Lord, we trust you to keep us in this life. And we trust you with our forever, our eternity. Lord, we thank you, even for giving us the means to come before you. Through Jesus, our Savior, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.